Hello and welcome to Local Selection, the podcast on a quest to make local representation sexy. I'm Brian Hastert and our guest today is Kansas State Representative Christina Haswood. She represents District 10 in the State House, including Baldwin City and parts of Lawrence, home to not only the University of Kansas, but also Christina's first alma mater, Haskell Indian Nations University. As of her swearing-in ceremony on January 11th, 2021, which went viral on TikTok, she's one of three Native women serving in the Kansas State House of Representatives. This is our 10th episode. And before we get on to the interview with our guest, I just need to take a moment to acknowledge that our audience is growing week by week, and I am so grateful to all of you for listening and for spreading the word. And I am super grateful to those of you who have signed up to support this work on our Patreon. You are literally making this whole endeavor sustainable. And we officially have our first top-level Patreon subscriber. They're choosing to remain anonymous at this time, but big, big thanks to them. We are putting plans together now for some pretty ambitious future episodes. Cities and states around the country are right now, currently, flexing the power of local political office in profoundly terrible ways, like the anti-trans law just passed in Arkansas and the anti-voting laws in Georgia, and in profoundly amazing ways, like New York State legalizing marijuana and expunging pot-related criminal records. Plus, Ithaca, New York, is majorly overhauling police budgets and public safety, and states like Nebraska are proposing laws to outlaw conversion therapy and protect LGBTQ youth. Now, more than ever before, these local offices will decide to make life better for people or to silence and kill people. But in any case, the effects are going to be profound, and we have the power to shape the direction of that profundity. The other thing is, there are so many local elections happening this year and next, up and down the calendar and across the country. And when those elections are not tied to federal elections, to the midterms or presidential elections, the turnout in these local races is low. How low? So low that people literally do not even hear about them. The opportunity here is that a little bit of voter excitement can have a gigantic impact on the outcomes of these elections. In the municipal primary elections that were just held in Omaha, Nebraska, for instance, the top two mayoral candidates received 53,000 votes between them. In the presidential election in that county just six months ago, the top two candidates received 327,000 votes between them. So there is plenty of room to grow here. And all of your support to us, to this podcast, goes into that fight, into getting people more invested in progressive candidates and humane government at every level of our society. Every so often, it helps to revisit the goals that I set for us back in our first episode. I am bringing you awesome public servants from around the country to help you see what's possible in this world and to know what it looks like when a local official is fighting hard for you. And after that, it's your turn. You get to check out your local officials and say, is my representative as awesome as the person I just heard from a local selection? Is my rep fighting for as awesome an agenda? If so, hooray, support that person with gusto so that they can keep up the fight. If not, can they be pressured into becoming more awesome, into fighting for worthier goals? If yes, great, apply that pressure. If not... Can you find and support the awesome person who is already working hard to replace them? And if there is no such person, can you become that person? Are you ready to get in there? That brings us back to our guest today. Christina Haswood became that person, and it worked. This past January, at age 26, Christina was sworn into the Kansas House of Representatives, becoming one of three indigenous women to serve in that body. Christina is going to talk through some of the highlights and the challenges of her journey into that office, but I want to offer context on one phrase that she drops early in our conversation. She mentions boarding schools, and if you're not indigenous, the phrase boarding school probably conjures something like a fancy sleepaway prep school. That is not what we are talking about here. For hundreds of years of American history, the government established American Indian boarding schools, Places designed to remove Native kids from their parents, cut their hair, ban their Native languages, separate them from their real names with new 
Christian names, and thus, heavy air quotes here, civilize them into assimilation with white culture. In 1891, the U.S. government passed a law making attendance at these schools mandatory, which led to federal officers kidnapping Native children from their families. In 1895, 19 men from the Hopi Nation were arrested and sent to Alcatraz for refusing to give up their children to the white American assimilation process. We have another word for this kind of government policy now? Genocide. Christina Haswood laughs a lot in this interview, but when she says that they tried and failed to keep her out of the very building she now serves in, she's deadly serious. And while the federal government still has massive power to commit or correct wrongs, I would contend, based on everything I'm learning through these interviews, that the day-to-day -day execution of white supremacy is now largely performed by municipal and state governments, where it is no less dangerous. Park Cannon, a Georgia state representative who is black, was recently arrested when she knocked on the governor's door and attempted to witness the signing of the law that will deprive black Georgians of voting access. White supremacy prefers to operate behind closed doors. Christina Haswood understands this more intimately than many Americans. Her alma mater, Haskell Indian Nations University, right there in her district, House District 10, was founded as a boarding school. She and some of her awesome colleagues are standing up to make sure that, even in a place as conservative as Kansas, the government recognizes the humanity of everyone, and there could not be a shift more profound than that. Okay, so you are a Kansas State House rep representing part of Lawrence and another entire city called Bald Baldwin. Is that what it's called? Baldwin City, yeah. And I noticed that Vogue ran an article about the outfit you wore to your swearing-in ceremony this January. And I will say, normally, when I read articles in Vogue about people's fashion in politics, I, I guess I don't really read them. I notice that they exist, and I quickly flip past them and could not care less. But in this instance, not only did I read the whole thing, I was actually really moved by what you talk about. Can you talk about why it felt important to you to have the opportunity to discuss your, your swearing-in attire? It's interesting, too, to see how much media it got, just because coming from my culture and us Dines Navajos, it's just what we do. <laughs> and to see it, I guess, more at a national, international platform is really cool. Just to, I think back on the political history of it, where even in the state of Kansas and other states, we wear our traditional regalia, a lot of other tribes too, during a very special time in a, in a person's life. So like a high school graduation, for example, and a lot of other states too, we're trying to ban indigenous folks on wearing their traditional regalia, like their moccasins or like even a eagle feather in their graduation cap. And a lot of states had to put in protection legislation. I believe one passed here in Kansas about a year or two ago. Luckily, there was no issues with that in my educational journey. But it's really crazy just to see like, you know, something simple like that. You know, the school's argument was like, you know, we don't want people to have special, like we want everyone to look uniform. And I, right. I don't understand, but it's- Well, but you know, the thing is like, whose uniform do they want everyone to look like, right? We want everyone to, to basically look the same, and we want that sameness to be the way white people mm -hmm. look already, you know? It's like the boarding school era all over again, like <laughs> yeah. cutting your hair and putting on the school uniform. But yeah. it's really symbolic because indigenous peoples have one of the lowest graduation rates. And even in my high school, you know, I saw a lot of my indigenous classmates kind of struggle with class attendance and with substance abuse. And seeing something like that, it's like, why? And then you look back on policy and legislation. You know, this is what like really gets me fired up. It's like, you know, there's a point in time and period where we couldn't even practice our own ceremonies. We had to get like a Native American Religious Freedom Act. Like, isn't that crazy? <laughs> it is. It's crazy. It's literally crazy. Yeah, I don't know. I can go on a whole spiel about that. But anyways, back to the Vogue article. <laughs> um, my outfit is one of the traditional Navajo regalias, where it's like a velveteen blouse and a three-tier skirt. And these can definitely vary range between the individual or families. But 
me and my mother, we usually make these outfits, and it was really special because her and I made it, but also my partner made it, and he's not native. He's white, so, you know, oh, he would wow. come over. I'd be like, can you help me, like, cut the fabric? Because it's a lot of fabric that we have to gather. So we went to my parents' house and, you know, measured out, like, many feet of this fabric. And then the symbolic of my ribbon, I wanted to represent kind of like the medicine wheel, even though it's not a Navajo learning aspect. Um, I believe, you know, the symbolic colors of black, white, red really play into a lot of indigenous people's cultural knowledge, which, you know, in this new job position, I'm not only representing people from my tribe, I'm representing a lot of indigenous peoples, but also a lot of non-indigenous peoples. So really trying to take that all into my outfit and then even to the jewelry a lot of the jewelry has been passed down to me a lot of it the bigger pieces are are my mother's because I feel like I'm not responsible enough to handle like these thousands and thousands of dollars worth of jewelry and I also made a TikTok that day too that has gotten a lot of great attention where I showcased throughout the day getting my outfit together to that day where I had my right hand up to say I to be sworn in I didn't get myself ready by myself. It was me, my mother, my grandmother, like my, you know, people who love and care for me here helped me get to where I was that day and continue to like continue yeah. every day still. I really just want to show that, you know, I didn't get here by myself. And like how Congresswoman Deb Hall always says, like I stand on the shoulder of my ancestors. There was a lot of sacrifice for me to even have this job. You know, there's a lot of efforts from the government of all levels for indigenous people to not even be here today. So taking that all in and <laughs> showcasing mm -hmm. that, I'm really glad. And then the writer of that Vogue article is indigenous himself. So it's yeah. really great to see. And he writes a lot of great other indigenous articles on fashion. It was, a like I said, a really moving article. And I watched that TikTok. And again, it's just very moving to see you sharing, you know, the, the experience of getting ready that day and like what that entails and how much comes with that experience in terms of like getting ready, in terms of the choices of how to present. And then you have a memorable moment in there where you're signing along like the registry for the day. And oh, then you yeah. have like, a little line about like, gotta get paid, lol. And I was like, <laughs> no, but that's that's like legit. This is a, I mean, it doesn't pay a ton. I, I don't know, what's the salary for a Kansas State rep these days? I don't know the calculations, but you know, I get paid so far like 2000 biweekly. It's more money that I've ever made. <laughs> right. um, and I have a weekend job too. My car just broke down. So I'm like <laughs> having to do all that now. <laughs> but you know, the other people who have families who might take care of a loved one, I believe that salary isn't enough. And that's kind of the barrier for a lot of young people or people yeah. of color or people from a disparative background to even run for this type of position. Absolutely. I mean, I never hear conversations about what we pay elected officials at these levels. You hear about it in Congress sometimes because, you know, we hear about it, especially when they're voting to keep the minimum wage frozen where it is, but raising their own salaries year after year into the, like the high hundreds of something thousands of dollars. So, you know, I think it's important, like you said, to acknowledge that the the low pay in a lot of these positions is a, a major barrier to entry for a lot of folks. It's kind of uh, a taboo topic too. When you're on that side of the conversation, so me as an elected official, if I were to go out into the world, mind you, the political spectrum here in Kansas is more conservative. If I say my job doesn't pay me enough, I would like a raise. Like, can you imagine the headlines of that? So I think a lot of us are trying to figure out, okay, we know we don't get paid enough. We know it's a barrier to a lot of young people, but where in the conversation of change can we come together bipartisanly to address this issue? Or because of a lot of legislatures in there are over 50, over 60, they've had their career, they have their financial savings, they're married. <laughs> you know, I'm not married. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, hopefully. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, you know, just having that, it's really an interesting conversation. And I'm still learning, too. And this is with a lot of issues of where in my voice should I, you know, put a lot more effort in? How should I frame the message and really educate people on this type of issue? But this is taxpayer dollars. And that's a big, you know, serious thing to always consider. I think it's interesting. 
I, I completely agree. And I hope it doesn't always remain taboo for you to talk about that. But while it does, and you're, and I can understand why it feels weird for you to say, I think I should get a raise. But I tell you what, it's not weird for me to say it. <laughs> I don't think you make enough money and I think you should get a raise. And I hope more people will say that sort of thing mm-hmm. because it's less weird for us than it is for you to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, at least, at least right now. <laughs> um, like you said, Kansas is a pretty, it's understood to be a pretty conservative state. Mm-hmm. You know, we, every four years during the presidential election, nobody thinks about it because it's like a quote-unquote reliably red state. Having said, who's the, the governor of Kansas now? She's a Democrat. Governor Laura Kelly. Mm-hmm. Now that seems like a significant thing considering that it's a more conservative state. Mm-hmm. Like it's, it, the, the politics of the state are, are more interesting than that. And the history of Kansas, you know, it was a, a progressive capital in the country for like the whole first half of the 20th century. And then some stuff started to happen, you know, but like the, the history of Kansas is way, way more complicated than that. I'm wondering as you work on the inside, where do you notice the, the complicating factors to the narrative of conservative Kansas? Like where do you see people popping up wanting more progressive stuff in their life? I think the issues of um, like criminal justice this summer had some type of bipartisan conversation you know, with police brutality, where we all can agree that somebody dying on the streets from a police officer is completely wrong. But we might have different approaches on how to prevent that and the severity level of punishment. You know, I feel like a lot of issues that we do have, like education for children, we understand that the Kansas numbers are low ranking. And how do we fix that? We all each have our own different perspectives on how to address those issues. But when we go into general orders on daily sessions, a lot of legislation we pass out bipartisanly. And I think agriculture might be another common ground issue that we all agree on. Um, Being on water and agriculture committee, I really feel like are not partisan issues. There are rare occasions where my value of a progressive might be dismissed. And I've talked to my colleagues on the other side about it as you know, why in agriculture do we not talk about the workforce? And to my understanding, majority of the workforce is Hispanic in the Western Kansas, where we have meat packaging plants who had COVID outbreaks and are not getting the vaccine. Like, why don't we talk about the workforce enough? And I try to be respectful on having these conversations, you know, to their face and not when it's streaming on YouTube and putting people on the spot because I want to build this nice relationship with my colleagues and try to find common ground. But I'm also having a conversation with like Kansas Livestock Association. I've talked to the Kansas Department of Agriculture and I've asked the same question and it's coming to be like a common response where people are just like, oh, I'm like, well, I come from a public health background. I sit in health and human services. We talk about the workforce like every single day. We talk about nurses and physicians. Um, we talk about, you know, the patient side of it and the patient satisfaction. Why is this conversation different when we talk about agriculture or we talk about water? Even in water committee, I asked a question of we're talking about plugging up wells that are not being used. And to my understanding, that's being paid for by state general funds which is uh, Kansas taxpayer dollars. Um, anyone can correct me if I'm wrong on this pr- uh, process. But when I heard about that, I asked- I think you're the expert in the room on this one. <laughs> like you said, it's like my fifth week or, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still learning and- Yeah. <laughs> but I asked, okay, are these jobs being prioritized to Kansans? And they're like, um, they're being prioritized as someone who's most qualified. I'm like, okay, so that was a no. <laughs> But just, you know, maybe my ideas and my beliefs might not be the common conversation in the room, but I still try to speak up and still try to figure out where in the conversation can we hold these people accountable? When do we need to hold their feet to the fire publicly on Twitter or, you know, it's just weird political environment. I'm having fun learning about it. (laughs) I hope so, because it sounds like the learning curve is going to be steep just in terms of you can only know so much about the way a state works before you get into the room. And I think that you, you know, you said you have a public health background. You have a, a master's degree in public health, right? Yeah. What an amazing time for Kansas to have found you to work <laughs> with them. Because not only is it like the pandemic, but also, you know, your Navajo, your family is Navajo. And the Navajo Nation was like 
the most or among the most affected communities in the whole country as far as the pandemic goes. So yeah, your, I think your they, connection to and knowledge of all this stuff feels like incredibly mm -hmm. important right now. Yeah. And that was one of the biggest things I talked about on the campaign trail and seeing, you know, the Navajo Nation have one of the highest rates of COVID cases and COVID mortality. Even my family, we've lost a couple loved ones and it was a completely different process especially with the funeral arrangements and how our cultural beliefs are, things just looked a lot different. And one of my biggest messaging was, I'm seeing this happen with my family over there and with my community that I, I love. And here in Kansas, we have the time, we have the resources, we have the experts. I don't want us to fall into that path. So that's why I think we need to listen to the science and the experts into this field to put us on the right track. But sometimes it's discouraging when we see our governor listen to the experts of public health and facing backlash. Um, I think one of the great things that she did was shut down schools right away and put us on lockdown because what would have happened if we didn't? How many more deaths would we would have had in Kansas? And, you know, I feel like we still don't really have the way out to this pandemic. Nobody does. Mm -hmm. And then you look on the political conversation, there's a lot of finger pointing. And I think that's one of the yeah. biggest things that annoys me of being a politician and being in politics is like, nobody wants to take accountability and they just blame the other side. Usually it's not that big of a deal. Like 90% of the legislation we work on is bipartisan. It passes out unanimously, but it's just that like 10% that we have our differences on. It's kind of amazing to hear in this extremely partisan age, divided age, that there's still so much that happens at the state level that people are just like, let's just keep it running. Let's keep it moving. You know, especially in a place like Kansas, which has, like we were saying uh, earlier, ha has its kind of split personality politically. I wonder if people listening probably don't know about the Brownback experiment, mm -hmm. uh, what people in the rest of the country call the Kansas experiment. But, you know, Sam Brownback, that's his thing. So I wonder if you could talk about what that was in Kansas and how that went. I'll do my best, <laughs> but I will refer everybody to a great organization called Loud Light, and they do a great explanation in depth with graphics and everything on YouTube. But to my understanding, it was this tax experiment where the governor at the time wanted to cut a lot of funding and give tax breaks to a lot of corporations in the theory that it would attract more corporate organizations to come to Kansas to give more jobs. I don't know what the science was on that, but it ended up being disastrous. And the biggest downfall negative impact was our public education school systems were severely underfunded and it went to court to be constitutionally underfunded. So that's something that we constantly are fighting for here in Kansas. And currently in the session, we hear a lot of conversation about public dollars. You know, people want public dollars to be funneled to private schools, which makes absolutely no sense. Public dollars should go to public schools. And that was probably one of the biggest impacts. But it also, you know, we see with our unemployment system currently, to my understanding, that was one of the things that kind of got put on the back burner because the technology for the unemployment system is 40 something years old. And I don't know if this is the partisan talking, but I believe he had a, he had a chance to invest that money to update our unemployment technologies and it didn't happen. And then I think it just been put on the back burner for so long after that, that it completely crumbled and it's failing a lot of Kansans today. It's really heartbreaking and frustrating to see. It's probably one of the frustrating things of my job right now where I feel so powerless and something that is actually hurting Kansans every day and mentally too. It's mentally exhausting to not know when your next paycheck is going to be. Because the unemployment system, like the, the government bureaucratic system that is in charge of taking claims from people and then issuing money to them, that is so old, so out of shape, so underfunded. And you just got there, so you can't just like remake the system <laughs> magically with a wand. But do you see where that work might begin for you since you're on the inside now? Or are you still in a process where you're like, I don't even know where to begin with this. It's so badly broken. 
it's a pretty big issue for, for myself. I don't know where do I begin? Where does my powers... I have powers, but I have a lot more limitations. But it's also frustrating to know where do I have the most power to advocate for my constituents and the good folks of Kansas. I'm not as an expert into all these agencies and I'm still learning every day about the funding of things and how are things funded, especially during the pandemic, we lost a lot of potential funding. We have a big shortfall, but good thing it wasn't as anticipated of a big shortfall. Mm -hmm. These are all the things that I am no expert in. I'm no expert in economics or taxes. And I I'm still trying to figure out like what can I do and it's frustrating at times because I'll get emails of people saying go talk to the governor well I've only met her once for like 15 minutes <laughs> and of course we talked about unemployment but it's also like where where is her power in this but also where is congress's power in this with our um, stimulus checks and providing mm -hmm. that federal funding because a lot of like the Federal Cares Act came from Congress. And then we see everybody but Congresswoman Sharice Davis trying to advocate for these stimulus checks. And it's a lot of things happening at once. <laughs> um, so, you know, I feel like I'm learning every day and I'm taking a lot of meetings with constituents and organizations who help me along this process. Yeah, my imagination tells me that being new to politics and being brand new to the actual job you hold within politics might feel quite overwhelming sometimes. But the thing is, if we don't get new people into politics, then everything is gonna look a lot like things have looked all along. And the way things have looked all along have frankly been really, the, the systems have served very particular people along very racial lines. You know, when you brought up earlier, like why don't we talk about the ag workers the same way we talk about the medical workers? Well, I think probably the fact that most of the agricultural workers in the western part of the state are Mexican. How many Mexican or other Hispanic members of the state legislature are there? I believe there's about three or four on the House side. I can't recall if there's any on the Senate side. Yeah. So out of like a hundred and whatever reps, <laughs> that's a single digit percentage, right? Yeah. Maybe zero on the Senate side, maybe one or two. And so... You know, there's something about who is speaking up in these rooms. You, you gave you gave an interview for with Flatland that I thought was a really beautiful interview. And you said something that I'm going to quote back to you now, which really uh, hit me straight in the heart. You said, you know, about your starting this job, about your swearing in. How many times in this room of the House of the Chamber are there discussions that try to take and dehumanize indigenous peoples and Native Americans. I was like, man, whatever they tried to do in this room, it didn't work. It failed. I'm here. That was so powerful to me because like you, you hearken back to like the boarding school days and the insidious history of white America, of colonial America, trying to decimate this culture, the, the culture of the various Native peoples. And that wasn't like, a bunch of people with hate in their hearts acting independently of each other, you know, to do these racist things. That was a governmental, systemic, planned, legislated, orchestrated series of events. And here you are in the room where that happens and speaking up. And you talk about being new, but Kansas is interesting because in the last four years, we've seen so many people breaking glass ceilings in terms of like, the representation of their particular demographic. We've seen more trans people elected suddenly, you know, running for office and being elected. We've seen more people of different races and different religions being elected in places where there had been nobody like that elected. Kansas wouldn't be a state where I would think there would be a lot of indigenous representation. And frankly, there isn't in terms of population, but in terms of like relation to other states, that actually is. Can you talk about who those people are and what, what it's like to have that sort of role model situation and wh what you're able to sort of accomplish with, um, you know, mentor figures like that? Yeah. So um, I'll probably start off with the natives in the house, uh, Representative Dr. Ponkawi Victors. 
Representative Stephanie Byers um, and me are the indigenous Native American folks in the state house. I'm not sure if there's been a native on the Senate side. That's something that's probably another glass ceiling we should break soon. Mm -hmm. I'm not old enough, so don't look at me. (laughs) Um, Well, not yet, but you will be. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But seeing Representative Dr. Victors is the first female Native American to be in the state house, and she's been in there for over 10 years. Absolutely killing it. And to have that representation double, as well as with Representative Byers being the first transgender legislature, mm-hmm. and that LGBTQ plus population, having those voices there is extremely important because even, I'll take an example, in my Health and Human Services Committee, I saw that there was this one bill and they tagged along the VA and I was like, why don't you also add in Indian Health Services? <laughs> I was like, you know, they're similar in nature where it's a government-funded and regulated healthcare system. Doesn't get the best healthcare system, but it's there. And why don't we add them into our statute to hold accountability? The person I was talking to, I think it was the organization's governmental affair, was like, oh, I didn't think about that. I was like, I don't know, it's just something to think about. We can t- take a step back and talk to the lawyers to weigh out those things. But I was like, you know, I'm just throwing that out there. And another thing that happened, there was a anti-trans bill for sports, female sports, one of those disgusting bills found its way in the Kansas Senate side. And we had Representative Byers there to give her testimony in person. And to my understanding, she was saying this type of language will will take the lives of trans individuals you know when we have this horrific disgusting piece of legislation and getting immediate attention they don't feel welcome in this world and there's a lot of suicide that happens like you know you need to think of your consequences when you try to go forward with you know some bs like this so when that came up it's sad to see something like that but it's like that's why she's here she yeah. is going to tell it how it is. And she's going to stand up for those folks who too often are being told to be silent, to not be who they want to be, to not love who they want to love. And to have her in the state house is extremely powerful. There's a lot of other great other people who come into the legislature who have unique experiences. And I'm going to name my other office mate. Her name is Representative Lindsey Vaughn, who is technically younger than me but we're both 26 um you know (laughs) she brings this other young progressive voice as a young woman it's really cool we all have our own little niches and like our expertise like my office mate is representative joella hoy who was the kansas chapter for moms man action and seeing her it's like absolutely kill it and then all my other colleagues too that stand up for like k-12 education and veterans you know, that's just the freshman dem women that the new all of us new freshmen that came in and that's just the freshman dem <gasps> women that you're talking through. Most I of mean, it. <laughs> well, you know, you said you you were new to politics as of basically twenty nineteen when you suddenly started to imagine yourself in this world. And before that you had said in other interviews, if you ever got involved in politics, you saw yourself getting involved in tribal politics because you didn't know if there was a place for you in like American governmental structure politics. What happened in 2019 to change that for you? Let's see, what was going on? Um, I think I was in grad school and um, my education journey, I wasn't academically strong to say the least. So I did a lot of internships and I knew public health was my field of choice, but I didn't know where in the aspect of public health and line of public health I was happy with. So I did internships at like the tribal level, at the state level, at a college level, nonprofit and DC level, and a federal agency with Indian Health Services. And it was, I think the summer of 2019 where I did the Native American Political Leadership Program in Washington, DC. And I interned with the National Council of Urban Indian Health, which is a national nonprofit that focuses on urban natives like myself who don't live on the reservation. And half of my internship was like public health, writing papers, researching, um, and giving suggestions in the research aspect of it. But I was always interested in how, you know, after we write these papers, like where do they go? What kind of impact do they make? And then in public health, we're always taught that a big macro impact is that policy and making laws and being in these elected official positions. But they never really tell you like, 
hey, you should explore it. Or no one ever, no one ever tells you you should run for an office position. So, hmm. but they tell you, you know, like you could be like a governmental affairs or, you know, or you can go to law school, you know, <laughs> get out of here, go to law school. <laughs> but when I got that like curiosity, during that internship, I got to shadow the congressional director. We went to Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., and I saw her do the process of, like, meeting with the congressional staffers. I got to sit at the table, and, you know, we have our one-sheeter, and we explain who we were, and, you know, these are the issues we would, like, the congressman or woman to focus on and to be knowledgeable on. First of all, the congressional staffer, I was like, they are my age, and they're younger, like... <laughs> are these the people running the country? Like, <laughs> like, I was like, what am I doing in grad yeah, school? Yes, like, the answer is sort of yes, actually. It's wild. <laughs> and then you realize that they get paid like nothing too. And they put so much effort into the work. So once I saw people who look like me in these office of positions are, I was like, oh, hold up, hold up. Like, <laughs> I can, mm. I can, like, I don't know why I always envision, like, an older gentleman law degree, like, in the TV shows. <laughs> That's actually not a rhetorical question. The, you know, the, I don't know why I envision it that way. The answer is because that's what you are shown, right? Yeah. Like, it's not a coincidence that it looks that way in the TV shows. It's because there is, like, a conscious narrative created as to who these people look like. Like, I'm in the entertainment industry, and this is a gigantic conversation because that, you know, pardon my <laughs> French, but it has to stop because part of representation is, like, government representation. Like, you are actually represent literal people. But then media representation also creates a narrative that either encourages or discourages people to join in to the, the systems creation process. So how wonderful for you that you put yourself in these positions to see what it looks like on the inside and to begin to see like, oh, maybe there's a place for me here after all. Yeah. <laughs> and then you like, you know, you meet these people and you're just like, oh, you know, I'm as qualified as you are. I'm you know, more qualified than you. Then you realize it's all about networking. <laughs> so that's a very important skill. <laughs> Yes. So you somehow got from there to here. Did you have a network in place or did you have to suddenly decide you wanted to build one? Uh, let's see. So I, I forget the sequence of events, but it all happened in the same year. I took like a law policy class. I was a grad student at the University of Kansas Medical Center in Kansas City doing that commute from Lawrence to Kansas City. And mm. we got to go to the Capitol one day in Topeka and... I was like, oh, I haven't been here since like fifth grade during like our tour. <laughs> and I never really took an interest in state level politics because I really focused on indigenous Native American federal tribal policy, which normally it always skips state level politics. And mm -hmm. once I noticed that, I was like, why? Like, <laughs> is, it, is it just because like they don't want to work on it or I don't know, it's because there's not enough <laughs> natives in there probably. <laughs> Oh, is that is that the answer? Just because nobody at state level cared? I think people do care, but I think people are not educated, knowledgeable on tribal issues. And you, this is like my my go to question in a lot of presentations is like, okay, where does the tribal rights come into this into this conversation? Most of the people don't know. I don't know. It's just it's just this weird thing that I'm still trying to figure out. But yeah, after that class and then internship happened. I was more intrigued into state-level politics and how does tribal Indian law come into this and how could I use my public health experience because my research interest was always in suicide and adolescents and Native Americans and how did that look here in the state of Kansas. So one of the first things I did to get involved was to register voters and I did this in Kansas City. Um, but the thing that I realized, it was a specific target area of Kansas City, lower income. And the people that signed up to volunteer, I was the only person of color and everybody else who signed up to volunteer were like driving up in their, you know, more luxury cars. They didn't look a part of the community if you're catching my catching my gist there. Yeah. I and so, yeah. I was like, hold up. That's and I was probably doing I think I got more people registered to vote. And I think it's just because I look like a part of the community like when you go into volunteer in a community you don't dress your best like you put on your t-shirt and your jeans and your tennis shoes like you want to make people feel comfortable you don't want to look like you know everything and you're going to change everything for the for that community so when I saw something like that I was like is this what's happening so I started to um, attend my 
state legislature uh, who previously had my seat representative Eileen Horn, she had like coffee talk things on Saturday mornings. And I just checked out her Facebook page, found out the day and the time. I was like, all right, cool. I'll wake up early, I guess, on a Saturday. <laughs> and <laughs> it was like a little too early, like 9 a.m. <laughs> um, but I went and then I, was, I noticed people in the room, like I'm usually the only person of color. I'm the only person asking about Native American issues and people don't know the answers to my questions about Native American issues. But Representative Horn was extremely, she's nice. She's super smart. She left me some big shoes to fill. But, you know, I was, I felt comfort that she cared about the community, even though she might not be as knowledgeable in Native issues. So I had hope, but I, it's not the same story at the congressional level. I wonder if, you know, talking about the journey you had sort of arriving where you are and the, the discovery that this was accessible to you and the, and the building of your network. One of the things you mentioned on your website that I thought was um, really noteworthy was that you talked about, you know, going to college and then going to graduate school. And one of the obstacles that you had to confront in order to do those things was your own depression, your own severe depression. I've read, you know, especially recently, quite a few candidate websites, and I, I just don't believe statistically that all of them have like a pristine mental and emotional health picture. You know, I just, that can't, that can't possibly be true. But nobody really talks about those aspects of their life as a part of their journey. I wonder if that was a, a moment of choice or thought for you to like include that as part of what brought you into politics especially given that you work in public health and especially given that as you talked about a moment ago, your interest in emotional and mental health and, and suicidality in tribal teens. It's an important part of my journey and I didn't really share it that much in the campaign trail, but to share it, it's so I can help break the stigma of bad mental health days. Um, I wasn't medically diagnosed of any of anything to be respectful for those who do have that medical diagnosis, but to recognize and to acknowledge and to share that I was in a, a not so good mental health place. And, you know, once you get to those types of positions, it's so easy to just make a final decision. And a lot of this happened when I was at Haskell because of a boyfriend broke up with me. When I see other indigenous peoples share mental health stories or even young people, it's common. And when that happened, I was like, hey, I'm in the health field. I'm, I was in community health program. We always tell people like, hey, if you need someone to talk to, go seek counseling or seek a therapist. I was like, why don't I walk the talk that I give? Let me just try it. Let me just try it. Like, <laughs> you know, us brown people, we don't go there. <laughs> but let me yeah. just try it. Let me just try it to say like, if this works or not. Um, and I did. And it was great. The counselor was another Native woman. And she was like, oh, I've seen you around campus. Like, you're so ambitious. And she was like, you know, that's going to be an issue for you in your life if you're going to continue this. Like, <laughs> she just, like, gave it to me straight. And she <laughs> did it in a very um, humorous way that's in line with our cultural. Like, you see me, um, you know, I'm talking about serious stuff here, but I, I'm always giggling. That's, like, part of our culture. We're always laughing. And it's kind of a good thing, bad thing, <laughs> where we want to talk about something serious and we just, like, laugh and tease about it. But, but then, you know, this whole mental health thing kind of happened again in grad school where there was a lot of incidents where one particular thing in grad school, we had a guest speaker who was a director of a big public health organization. And I asked him my, my favorite question, what about us natives? And he was like, oh, I don't know. I got to smoke the peace pipe. And I was like, did he just say that? <sighs> like nobody prepares you for this. And I didn't expect it at the grad school level, like, I thought we were all supposed to be smart. <laughs> and when that happened, I just, I just froze. Uh, rookie mistake, assuming that grad school. <laughs> that yeah. Was, yeah. So that prepared me. That was a slap in the face. Wow. But I just froze. And my initial reaction was like, WTF with all the words. But the thing that stopped me was like, this guy can give me a job. Or like, I'm in a room full of my colleagues, like, do I want to not show this professionalism? And it's this thing that I talk about where us Native women, like, we always have to, and I think other people of color, we always have to, like, stay strong and, like, brush things off. But we really have to, like, speak up. And I'm so glad that when I was in grad school, we had this woman of color support group with the counseling center. And finding out that a lot of us at that school and our different healthcare programs were facing something similar. 
So it's just this weird thing that I think a lot of universities have to take serious and to focus on, but also kind of something to look forward to, like all of my colleagues, when we get older, we're going to be, <laughs> you know, in their position to make sure that these things don't happen. But it's, you know, I feel like this happens too often and, you know, we're silenced or whatever to not speak about it. I'm pretty sure this happens more and I'm not the only person that this ha- is happening to. Well, I, I find it hard to imagine that you would be like the only person. I, I think that, you know, going back to your your website description, the, the fact that you have now obtained this um, position, this very public office, and have brought with you into that office the courage to speak about your own experience and not just the Instagrammable highlights of your experience, but also the challenges that you faced both internally and externally along the way to help people understand who might come from similar backgrounds or whatever, like, oh, I'm not like especially off or wrong or something like this is right. Because I think having some allies show up, you know, in the counseling center in the form of like, oh, you're being discriminated against. This is not actually your fault or you're doing that feels like such an, uh, an important moment. And that, again, is like a system coming to bear in a situation to make it, in this case, better instead of worse, which how wonderful is that? I could talk to you all day about a billion things. I am so fascinated with everything you're saying. There's only one other little tiny thing I want to I ask you about specifically. Um, you have this, uh, this fantastic platform that's also up on your website about um, you know, pursuing uh, environmental policies within the state and and gun safety regulation in the state and a bunch of things that I think are really wonderful and super valuable. One thing that um, caught my attention in particular on that list of things was you were calling specifically for the legalization of recreational marijuana. You're not just like medical or like for certain people, you're like, just legalize the damn thing and take everybody out of prison who was in there for this for the first place. Like this is, we're past this, which is like, you know, uh, you don't hear everyone taking such a clear, strong stand on that, especially in places like Kansas. So like, bravo. Thank you. And I give props to my voters and my community. I think I come from a very safe blue district that we share a lot of these progressive values. And that's why I think I have a little bit more freedom to say what I really believe in in comparison to maybe other Democrats who had a really challenging race. You know, I won my three-way Democratic primary and I ran unopposed in the general, which means there was no Republican. But taking that stance too is, it's really cool and empowering. And, you know, it's something I truly believe in and being young too and seeing a lot of like, younger people of Kansas, because another big issue that's pretty bipartisan is how do we keep Kansans in Kansas and young Kansans that go to like KU, K-State and all these other universities, how do we keep them in the state of Kansas? We see a lot of younger people going to Colorado. <laughs> um, I've, I have- Interesting. What, what, does, what do you think Colorado specifically has that Kansas doesn't have? Marijuana, cannabis, <laughs> increasing minimum wage. <laughs> you got you got higher minimum wage. You got the Rocky Mountains, and you got legal pot. I mean, that is a pretty strong series of arguments. Yeah. So Kansas is going to have to compete with that on some front, and you can't get the Rockies. <laughs> if you can't get skiing, I think we have one ski resort. Um, yeah, it's interesting to see how um, you know we don't have the numbers in the House or in the Senate, and seeing such conservative legislation pushed through. But also seeing like how that drives a lot of young Kansans away from Kansas. I hope people realize that, that, you know, who wants to live in a state where it's 725 minimum wage, where you can't get an abortion, your reproductive rights are on a ballot for everyone to vote on. You know, that's not really appealing to the younger people. It's always an interesting conversation. It's always a battle. And I think in the public health spirit, like public health um, atmosphere, there's that classic battle between we want to put in public health measures for the greater good, but then there's also the other people who say, well, it's my personal right to do what I want to do with my body. And you tell me what to do. I'm just not going to want to do it. So it's really interesting. <laughs> people love to not follow rules. And I, I'm one of those people. I go back and forth. Sometimes I like to disobey, but at the same time, I'm definitely somebody who believes that acknowledging that a society has other people in it and acknowledging that your actions affect them and acknowledging that their actions affect you 
is probably a really healthy way to start to talk about what laws we'll make and what rules we can put into place so that my actions don't overtly negatively affect other people and that your actions don't either. So, you know, in places like Kansas, I know that that conversation starts from a different place, but I am so grateful that that the state has you in place to speak up for a lot of people who maybe haven't, you know, had a big voice in that chamber for uh, the whole history of the state. You know, before we wrap up, I'd just like to give you the chance to say, you know, to 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 send people away with something that's on your mind or, you know, what offer whatever message you would like for people to take away into their day with them. Yeah. If you have any slight interest in running for office, you should do it. (laughs) You know, I think the basic requirement is just to have a love for your community, carry yourself very well, and speak up for people whose voices are often silenced, who are not represented at the table. I come from a great place of privilege to even have the time. I'm not married. I don't have kids. Like, I have the time to do this. And if you do, too, find it in yourself to advocate for those voices. But also, everybody here has a place on this earth. You belong here, even though some days it might be tough. And maybe you have multiple purposes. You know, my purpose right now is to be a state legislature. Sometime down the road, I want to get my PhD. Sometime down the road, I want to be a mother. That will be a different shift in purposes. So, you know, hang in there sometimes. So you got this. That is perfect. Thank you so much for saying all of that. Yes, chef's kiss. And I am so grateful again that you took the time to talk with me this morning. I know you have a lot of priorities you're balancing there. Um, So thank you. Great to talk to you. Thanks. (laughs) That is all for today. This episode was produced by Emerald O'Brien, theme music by the Castell Brothers. A huge thank you to Christina Haswood for joining us today and for all of her work on behalf of the Kansans that she serves. You can find Christina on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Haswood 4KS, F-O-R, not the number four. I'm also going to put a link in the show notes to the TikTok that she mentioned, the one of her getting sworn in. It really is a really touching video. Recommend it. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Local Selection, and on Instagram, at Local Selection Podcast. Not on TikTok. I'm good there for now. If you liked what you heard today, please help us get the word out by sharing this podcast with a friend. Just send it to them in a text or an email or whatever. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the feed so that you can catch new episodes right when they come out. Additionally, if you want everyone to know that you think local representation is sexy, you can wear it on a t-shirt from our store. And lastly, as I mentioned at the top of the show, please consider visiting our Patreon where you can sign up to be a monthly supporter. It is a fabulous way to help us actually (laughs) afford to do this and it costs anywhere upwards from about a latte a month. Links to both the merch store and the Patreon in this episode's show notes and on our website, localselectionpodcast.com. Thanks for joining us today and see you next time in a new neighborhood.